I'll, don't worry, I'll say a little bit about what quantum mechanics is, but you know, I'll go quickly through a lot of things, so please slow me down. Um, that's your job today, is to like, slow me down a lot. Um, and uh, so thanks a lot, so my name is Miles. Uh, thanks a lot for coming out this morning to uh, talk with kind of an intimidating title, so you can write my intrepid uh, quantum mechanics adventurers here. Okay, so I, t I titled it From the Information Limit to Space Time, and, and I'll touch on these different um, aspects. And then the focus of the talk really is just to convey that there's been some really pretty groundbreaking discoveries as recently as in the 1970s and 80s, and even one that I'll mention um, that happened around 2005 that surprised everybody a lot in this field. And then kind of at the very end, I'll mention some very speculative things, but which may kind of take hold and become quite a big deal later on, as you'll see. Okay, so, um, so Jason mentioned the Flatiron Institute where I work. I want to just quickly flash a couple of slides up about that, because I think it's interesting, since you're all you know, New Yorkers, just to know what's going on um, down the street. And um, so what the Flatiron Institute is, is it's basically a scientific uh, philanthropy. Um, and it's uh, the brainchild of, of Jim and Marilyn Simons, who you may have heard of Renaissance uh, Tech, and this is Jim Simons, um, if you're, especially if you're in banking, um, who has just, I think he's like something like the ninth richest person in the world, and, and he and his wife started this, this foundation. They give away money to um, all kinds of universities for different, uh, you know, uh, scientific research, but then recently they had the idea of why don't they just hire scientists directly and just put them into a building in New York City. So that's what, that's what we are. And it just started a year ago, basically, uh, at least this building. And the building has four centers in it. Um, they're all uh, some kind of center for computational and a different area of science at the end. Um, and so the idea is that not only are we just doing science, but we're doing it in kind of a unique way, which involves a real focus on computational methods, data analysis, big data, modeling, um, and we release open source software for people in other uh, universities to use. And I'm in the one for quantum physics, but we have these other ones, biology, astrophysics, which is like stars, black holes, um, microwave background radiation in space, um, and then this new one, mathematics, which is gonna be coming online soon. And here's just kind of a fun slide showing where we are with a nice photo I found. So there's the Flatiron building, and we're in this other building on 21st Street, really close to it. Uh, people always ask, are we in the Flatiron building? But we're just in the neighborhood. So, um, and there's us up here. So. Uh, Okay, um, so now to today's talk, I basically divide it up into three parts. Um, uh, and then at the end, I'm gonna tie it in a bit to Christianity since it's a Sunday school talk. So, um, so we'll see how well a good a job I do of that. So the first part is mostly background material, but it's just to sort of give you a, a very cartoonish kind of high level view of like what we've learned about um, matter since the advent of quantum mechanics in around the 20s. And sort of what, what people figured out through the 50s, which was kind of like the first big phase of, of, this, of this field. Um, then I'll go over two exotic scenarios that were discovered, one in kind of the 70s and 80s, and another one kind of as in 2005 to recently, um, that just really floored everybody. There was no anticipation that these things would be found when they first laid down this groundwork here. And then at the end, I'll mention some speculative, but real ideas people have about entanglement and space-time. So let's get started with that. So structure of elementary matter. First of all, what do I mean by elementary matter? So, um, so I tell people sometimes I work on materials, but then I see their eyes glaze over, and I realize that not, that's not, they're not kind of thinking the same way I am. So when I say materials, what I really mean is elementary matter in the sense of, of uh, you have to have this internal point of view of, of a bar of gold is just gold atoms, right? I mean, you know, real bars of gold have some other kinds of impurities in them, but if you have pure gold, it's just one kind of atom, which is kind of incredible that you're holding a macroscopic thing that has something like the number of atoms in, a, in something you can hold in your hand is like a one with 23 zeros following. That's called Avogadro's number. It's kind of, kind of amazing already. Aluminum is just aluminum atoms. Salt is just two kinds of atoms, sodium and chlorine atoms. 
and in quartz is just silicon and oxygen atoms. That's it, right? So that's what I mean by simple elementary crystalline materials. You know, water is also like this. It's a liquid form, but it's, it's just hydrogen and oxygen atoms, right? Um, that's in contrast to other materials that we encounter every day, but they, those would be things like wood or leather, maybe plastics. These are much more complicated heterogeneous materials with lots of kinds of atoms and very complex structures at different layers. Like, like wood is made of plant cells, which have all kinds of organelles that are made of proteins that are, you know, so it's like all these, all these layers in between before you sort of get down to a few kinds of atoms. Whereas I'm just focusing on the ones that are made of, say, one or two or three or four kinds of atoms or something like that. So those are the ones that we are trying to understand at the Flatiron Institute at the CCQ Center. Okay, so what do these simple materials look like as you kind of zoom in on them and you get closer and closer and what's their structure like? So let's take the example that everybody likes of a, of a diamond. What's a diamond look like if you could zoom in on it? So what you would see is you would actually see an, a, a, a very, very regular array of carbon atoms. Um, and so what's interesting about that is that at this level, you could barely tell this apart from pencil lead, actually. So we think diamonds, we think they're these amazing things because you kind of see through them. But if you could take them and just shift all the atoms a tiny bit, it would just turn into pencil, common pencil lead. So it's really just shiny pencil lead. That's all, uh, that's all a, a diamond is, right? So um, that's what it looks like up close. And so um, let me show you actual experimental data where you can actually see individual carbon atoms. So this is how advanced technology is in the experimental side of, of physics, is that they can now drag a tiny tip. This tip is actually so sharp. This is just a cartoon of the tip, but they can make these tips that actually get down to one or two or three atoms at the very end of the tip, actually, which is just, you know, kind of mind-blowing to think about. So again, imagine dividing a bar of gold by a one with 23 zeros, that small, and they can actually get it that sharp. Um, and then drag it over a surface of carbon atoms. So now I'm switching from diamond, for those who are like aficionados of these things, this isn't diamond anymore. This is actually something called graphene, which is one layer of pencil lead, which I kid you not, the way they make this is they actually take scotch brand scotch tape, like actual scotch tape, put it onto a big chunk of pencil lead, and then rip it off a bunch of times. And then it turns out, for whatever reason, the people at 3M who made scotch just didn't know how you know, good of technology they were making. But you pull it off, and you get three atomically thin layers of this. You do it again, you get four, you do it again, you get one, and then you put it under a microscope. And it's something like one atom by you know, trillions wide layer of carbon atoms just with actual scotch tape on pencil lead. So this is something that these guys in London discovered you know, five years ago, and, and they got you know, this prize for it and everything. So, so then, I mean, it's really amazing. So literally scotch tape, you pull it off, and then you just scan this tip over it. The tip was much harder to make than the scotch tape thing, of course. And then you can actually see individual carbon atoms so that's just to show you, you know, that that's really all there is to some of these materials. They're just atoms in this regular array. So then what's an atom? So an atom is made of electrons, which I'm going to, for the rest of the talk, use kind of a bluish color for. And then protons, which are all clustered together very tightly in what you call the nucleus. And there's also um, neutrons. And the neutrons play kind of a supporting role. They sort of help hold the protons in with each other. They're, there's this thing called the strong force that holds them all together in the middle. Um, and this is a nice picture I found of... It's actually not a carbon atom, it's a boron atom, but I thought it was just a cool picture showing these um, kind of wavy-like shapes that the electrons make as they kind of surround the proton. So, so one thing right away that I, sh I wanted to say is that we think of electrons as kind of orbiting protons, but I think a better way to think about them is they kind of surround the protons. They're just like these cloud-like fuzzes or something like this. Okay, so the, I'm gonna, a lot of the next slides are kind of getting into like how best should we think of an electron. Okay, so but then that's the idea is that Everything we, we experience is mostly made of electrons and protons. And in fact, it's really electrons that are the star of the show in terms of our daily experiences. So the protons are there mostly just to keep the electrons around. 
that's in a material that's mostly what the protons do is they're just kind of like the, you know, the tent pegs or something. And then the electrons kind of stay around because they like to be near the protons. They hate each other, but they like the protons. And so then they stay around, but then the electrons figure out this kind of complicated dance where they're sort of, you know, doing things like this one will say, hey, I like this proton, but I also want to hang out with that proton. And this one says, yeah, I want to hang out with that one. And they'll kind of, they'll kind of call each other from far away and say, ready, one, two, three, jump. And then they kind of will switch places back and forth. And then the idea is that they like it better if they can do this versus if they can't. So that's what chemical bonding is, basically, is that they, they are both happier if they can switch places every once in a while versus if they can't. So then they like to bond. And so that's sort of what a covalent bond is. Yeah. yeah. Those were very complacent electrons. So those are the ones in here that I drew as circles. It's a great question. So um, those are very, very happy because they, they get to be so close to this proton that they don't want to compromise, that they're just, they're set. But the ones on the outside, they're not getting enough of this proton. So they say, well, maybe I could get some of this proton too. And, and, and so they move around to sort of get as much as they can of every, of every proton that they can get close to. That's sort of the idea. So they glue the material together and they bestow the material with this property. So why a metal is a metal or an insulator is an insulator. That's because of the, uh, the, how sort of tightly bound the electrons are, how much they travel around. Um, so just to kind of define those terms quickly, when I say metal insulator, you should just kind of think of like uh, aluminum or something. It's very shiny when it's polished. It conducts electricity. Versus an insulator, a good example would be a diamond, um, which um, you know, does not conduct electricity. That, that would be a good example of that. Or like a ceramic or something like that. It's kind of dull colored, and, and you couldn't conduct electricity through it. And that has all to do with the electrons and kind of how they move. Um, how should we think of an individual electron? So, you know, you, of course you're familiar with the idea of thinking them as kind of like points, like little dots or something. And you may have been told that they don't have any internal structure. And that's basically true in a sense. But I think a better picture, and this is, this is me kind of now giving my own personal opinion. Not all my colleagues would totally agree, but I think the math bears this out. That really it's more like a tornado or a small vortex or something. So it's more like that we think of it as a point. But that's kind of forgetting that it's actually something that is sitting above some kind of fluid that fills up the vacuum of space, more or less. And so it's really like a little swirl in this fluid. And we don't see the fluid because it's kind of how fish don't see water. But, but uh, really, the electron is kind of like some disturbance in something. So it's really more like a tornado. And that, that's a helpful picture, I think, because it immediately makes other weird things less weird. One of them is that um, the math tells you that if you put an electron somewhere and wait, it'll actually spread out. So it's really hard to think of a point or like a basketball or something spreading out. But if you think of a tornado, it's very natural. I mean, tornadoes do that, right? You can actually, or like an eddy in a river when you're paddling and you see the eddy. I mean, it's not crazy to us that that could spread out and yet have a center. So you can still say it's there and it's reasonable to think of it spreading out. So it sort of com combines these two ideas. You may have heard of the wave-particle duality or these weird things where it's like both a point and a wave, but we already know something that's kind of like that and it's like a tornado. So I think that's a good compromise picture of, of these things. Another thing about tornadoes is that when they spread out, if you have two of them, they can start to overlap and you can lose track of which one is which one. However, it's still perfectly valid to say that there are two of them in there. And how could you see that there's two of them? You could sit here and look at those, the wind strength. And if the wind strength is twice as strong as one, you could say there's two in there. But you can't really say where they are. They might be kind of going like this a lot. But you can sit on the side and say the, wind, the strength of the wind going around is twice as much as if I had one tornado there or something. So you can still say that there's two or one, even though they could fill up all of space. So that's help, trying to help you know, get past some of these uh, strange paradoxes. So then basically, if you have that picture, you already have you know, about half of what we call quantum mechanics uh, in terms of intuition. So, 
So quantum mechanics consists of something like four or five distinct discoveries that all just happen to be figured out at once in the 20s. So that's why it's a confusing topic, because there's all these different parts to it. But one, one key part is that it's the fundamental information limit of nature. It's the idea that we used to think you could sort of throw a ball and say it's moving this fast and it's at this location. But now, now we know better that for these kind of things, these quantum things, you have to make a trade-off where you either know where it is or you know its speed, um, but you can't know both absolutely. You have to sort of, the more you know one, the less you know the other. And this, this is kind of already the property of waves. Um, and it just turns out basically it's those discovery that particles have a wave aspect to them. The other related thing is that these particles are utterly identical and can sort of share an existence with each other and overlap. When I say utterly identical, I mean that we can tell that um, if, so, you know, if, you, if you put some electrons in a box and you turn around and someone comes up to them and then switches two of the electrons and you turn back around, there's absolutely no experiment you can do that could tell that had happened. Um, and we know this because if there was, we've done some logic and figured out that we would be able to do measurements that could tell, and, and these measurements are negative. So there's really no difference between electrons. Um, and, and we'll kind of see maybe some deeper aspects of that at the end. So it's really the information limit of nature. It's like seeing the pixels of nature in a sense. Okay, so now that's just some background just so you know what an electron is um, and kind of what role they play in a material. So questions about that so far? Or maybe I've lost everybody. So. Okay. Okay, good. So now, um, now kind of the meat of the talk is I wanted to tell you about two exotic forms of matter that had been realized only in the last kind of handful of decades. So again, to set up the contrast a bit, what do I mean by exotic versus regular? So regular matter is that, you know, most materials, if you just take different atoms in the periodic table and kind of clump them together, you just get a typical metal, which is just a shiny thing that conducts electricity, or some typical insulator where it doesn't. And in a typical metal, if you run a current through it, and you run it up and down by different amounts, um, you see the change in current tells you something about what's carrying the current. And you see that it comes in fundamental units of one electron charge. That's just to set the background. So you can see, we can see by doing careful comparisons that the things that are running through a metal are electrons. So when we put a current, that's what's running through is electrons. And you may think, of course, what else would it be? But we'll see that it can actually be other things here in this upcoming few slides. So that's the first story. Um, so the first story is this thing called the fractional quantum Hall effect. So the Hall effect was this kind of older story, and then um, it got to be made quantum, then fractional. So let me tell you what that is um, by kind of setting it up. So, so if you put a bunch of electrons together, say, in a material, it resembles a fluid, actually. So if you put enough of them together, it actually, because they're wave-like, um, you get something that's kind of like a sea out of electrons. And this, you can kind of think of waves sloshing back and forth in some container, but it still has this weird property that you can always count the number of waves in some sense, and it's always an integer. So you can kind of sit here on the side and, and, and sort of count the wind speed here, and it's exactly you know, whatever number of vortices this is. It always adds up to some integer times some fundamental number. So that's already kind of interesting. Um, and the electrons want to do two things. They want to spread out, okay? So I kind of animated it that way. They want to spread out, but they also hate each other. They want to avoid each other. So they're already kind of in this inner turmoil where they're trying to move around as much as possible but never get near each other. So they're already doing this complicated, it's kind of like a square dance, you know, where there's some kind of complicated rules, some kind of interlocking rules. Then um, where it gets interesting is if you kind of torture the electrons and make it even worse. So what you do is you put a strong magnetic field on them, and what that does is it kind of makes electrons drunk. So it confuses them about which way is a straight line. So they think they're going in a straight line, but it actually makes them curve. So now they're trying to move around and avoid each other, and you're sort of tricking them into thinking that they're going straight, but they're actually ending up back where they started. So they're going in circles, they're running into each other, and they're being confined into a small space, which they hate. Um, so it really frustrates them. 
So then they, they do something to sort of get out of this conundrum, very complicated, and this thing they do is called the fractional quantum Hall effect. Um, so it has this profound implication for these fluids, what happens. Um, so to explain this, um, I found a video online that I really like, and it's these two friends of mine, Jason, who I have some papers with actually, and then his colleague Gil. So they're these two professors at, at Caltech who I really like, and um, they um, partnered with this cartoonist named Jorge Cham, who has this web comic called PhD Comics, and he likes to explain science. So, um, so here, I'll let, I'll let Jorge and uh, Gil and Jason explain this. Let me do the microphone here. So they talk kind of quickly, so listen closely. This is a universe in which the most amazing things happen. So I'll give you an example. So if you have a, an electron, right, just in free space, that electron, as far as we know, is not made out of any finer stuff, right? So, I mean, the electron is indivisible, right? That's what all high-energy physics experiments tell us. However, imagine a lower-dimensional, two-dimensional universe for electrons, and you apply a strong magnetic field, and then cool them down to really low temperatures. Inside of this two-dimensional universe, that rule is very, very strikingly violated. So that electron can essentially split, it can fragment into smaller pieces that carry a third of an electron charge, or a fifth of an electron charge. That to me is, is, is amazing. It took a lot of thinking to figure it out. It turns out that the electrons form a state that's a liquid, but it's a quantized liquid in a very funny way. And the way that it's quantized is that they can make bubbles. Bubbles is like a place where you won't have electrons. And when you ask what's the smallest bubble that you can have, according to quantum mechanics, and that smallest bubble displaced a third of an electron. You cannot break that bubble down, and any charge fluctuation that you will see in that liquid will consist of several of these bubbles. I mean, there's various other sides of this, which are also quite cool. But another really neat thing that's going on in this kind of universe is that the electrons have, in some sense, become knotted up with each other. So when the electron splits into some number, say, string, in some ways, you should think about them as not just splitting, but like being little needles. And they have a string that goes back to the dawn of time for that system. And then when another electron comes and circles in one of those bubbles, it turns out that the threads knot. You can actually keep track of how many times one electron circled another. The wave function is like a register of what's the knot that your system created. So hopefully some of that came across. So basically the summary is that when you put these um, electrons into this 2D plane and then shine a really strong magnetic field on them, which is what something experimentalists have been doing, um, then you get these... Um, these bubbles, basically you can think of it as like if I remove one electron from this, this liquid, normally what would happen is if it was a regular electron liquid, there would just be a region where one electron charge was missing. But for some reason in this liquid, that bubble with one missing electron charge immediately falls apart into three bubbles, exactly three. And that's the weird part. It's not, you know, it's not 80% and 20% charge bubbles that are missing, which is what maybe what would happen if you made a bubble of air and water or something. It's always exactly three, and so each one is an exclusion of exactly one-third of an electron charge that's missing. Then those things run around and act like, for all intents and purposes, their own new kind of fundamental particle that's nowhere in the standard table of, of fundamental particles. So it's some whole other new thing, um, which, you know, it, has to, it can only exist in this medium of these other electrons. But if you kind of average over all these other electrons, it's like a new kind of fundamental particle of nature that was, that's been discovered in a lab. So that's already amazing. And then more amazingly, they have some kind of string that they drag behind them. And this string you can almost think of as like a crack in the fluid. So as they move, they kind of shift all the electrons and leave some crack. And the string then moves around. So you can't see it. It's always moving, and you can't really keep track of it. Um, but 
it's there, and so if you cross it, and the, and the way you can guarantee you cross it is if you move another electron in a circle around it, you, then you have to have crossed the string no matter where it was. Um, and when, as soon as you cross it, the entire liquid sort of shifts, like the entire thing rotates in some, in some sense, having to do, when I say rotates, I mean these vortices all turn. So every time you drag an electron around one of these bubbles, the whole thing shifts. And so you can think of it as keeping a count of how many times these have gone around each other. So the whole thing is like a big register that counts the motion of these bubbles. And also when you run a current through it, you see that the slope of the current uh, dependence on you know, how hard you push has this one-third slope rather than the fundamental charge of an electron. So you can basically see that this is happening by running currents and sort of measuring the rate, rate of change of things. So it's, it's really quite mind-blowing. Um, if, if you kind of are familiar with the normal behavior and you, you think about it a bit. So the old thinking was that the only way we're going to see new fundamental particles is by going to really high energy, building the LHC ring in, in you know, Geneva and spending billions of dollars to sort of slam protons together. But the new thinking now since the, since the 80s when this effect was sort of worked out um, and it, was, it resulted in a Nobel Prize and lots of spin-off work is that we can also get new fundamental particles by cooling systems down to basically close to absolute zero and, and sort of putting them in a very pristine environment. Um, and so that may sound like it's sort of just a sales pitch, like I'm calling them fundamental particles saying, you know, because maybe in my field we want to we have fundamental particles as well as the high energy people. But I mean, I think this actually may have very profound, uh, this may be truer than it sounds in the sense that our fundamental particles, electrons and protons, may in fact be nothing but bubbles. So we're thinking of these bubbles as being bubbles in an electron gas. And we say, well, they're not really fundamental particles. They're just some excluded region of charge around electrons. But it may be that what we call electrons or protons are just little excluded regions of some other thing that fills up space that we're so used to seeing that we take for granted, we don't think about it this way. But it would be completely consistent. And the way I would argue this is I would say, why would nature have kind of two sets of rules, one set of rules for the fundamental particles, and then another set of rules for these bubbles, but which are otherwise completely mathematically identical, but there's just two sets of these rules? Or is it more likely that actually what we think of as fundamental are just another hierarchy of these bubbles? So that's, so this hasn't been totally established, but people, there's this guy at MIT who's really trying to show that you can fit the whole standard model of particles into this kind of bubble paradigm rather than this kind of high energy paradigm. So um, but for this work, for actually seeing this effect in real crystals, these people um, shared a Nobel Prize. So these two, Stormer and Sui, um, had, uh, they're the ones who actually saw this in the lab. And then Laughlin is this uh, Stanford theory professor who figured out the mathematics to explain what was going on and, and you know, why this happens. And interestingly, you can also see all kinds of other bubbles. There's ones that have a third. Um, there's ones that have two-fifths. Uh, there's all these, or is it five halves, actually? Five halves, there's all these other levels and fractions. And then the weirdest is that some of them have these um, connections to the Fibonacci numbers. It gets, it gets really cool. So there's more you could say about this for sure. Um, but let me go on to the other exotic form of matter that um, was found much more recently. So this is one called topological insulators. I had a clip from the Big Bang Theory I was going to put here, but it's, it's Sheldon being a little bit insulting, so I didn't want to insult you guys. Maybe I can show it at the end. But, um, but it, get, it got mentioned in the show. Um, so topological insulators, um, so that story, I, got, I went real fast through that fractional quantum hall story, but that's basically a story about uh, mobile electrons kind of in a metal in a 2D plane. This is sort of a story about more like 3D materials that are much more everyday looking materials that you could just dig up out of the ground, essentially. Um, but, but there were some hidden effects in these that people just had missed for like 100 years, like literally 100 years or something. Um, so there's this very standard analysis that we do of these materials, which I'm not expecting you to totally understand, but I'll just give you a flavor. Um, 
which is what we do is we essentially mathematically cut through these materials. When I say mathematically, I mean there's these kind of wavy electrons going back and forth through the material, and they're all overlapping with each other, and it's really complicated. But what we can do is we can do an analysis of all the wave modes. If you know about Fourier transforms, it's basically that. Um, we can sort of Fourier transform the waves that are pinging back and forth through the material and make these wave plots. We call them band structure plots. And so what they're basically saying is everywhere there's a dot, like everywhere there's a line at some point, it says there's a wave of that, of that oscillatory frequency at that energy. So it's sort of a relationship between how many wiggles an electron has as it moves through to what energy it takes for it to have that. And, and it makes these really interesting structures. And so basically all these bands at the bottom, these wiggly things at the bottom, these are the electrons that are actually there. And these are additional waves they could be in if you heat it up or kind of kick it with a current or something. It'll jump up into these other waves that are not being used. But these are like available waves that it could use or something like that. So this is just to give you a flavor. So we can basically analyze all the waves. Um, and we can see this analysis from experiments. Kind of amazing. So if you look at this picture, this is a mathematical prediction of these wave structures. And this is actual data. So see that V? That's that V there and see how it's kind of sitting on top of this thicker region? That's this thicker region down here. So they can actually see these waveforms and the way they do it is they shoot x-rays at these materials and then electrons come flying out. So they can basically uh, kind of rip electrons out of these materials by, by shooting light at them and then catch the electrons and then they do different angles. They kind of change the angle of the x-ray and change the angle of the electron collector. Um, and as they map all this out, they can then uh, do a mathematical transformation and then make these plots and it just matches really, really well with these, these kind of wave structures. So anyway, there's this kind of wave structure inside the material and we know it's there, we can see it. And that's, so that was just some old story and it's kind of now considered kind of conventional stuff from the 1950s basically. This is kind of old school condensed matter quantum physics stuff. But then in 2005, um, this professor at, at Pennsylvania, um, Charlie Kane, realized that there was a missing piece in the story that everybody had missed for like 100 years. And this piece is that these waves, which, I mean, I'm trying to make this analogy of them being kind of these stringy things. So if you, you think about this, these are like little overlaying strings or something, in a sense. These strings can be knotted. So those, those, those kind of stringy mess, that soup at the bottom of those plots, can get knotted up with, with itself um, in some mathematical sense. What this really means is if you follow those paths through those plots I showed, they can do these crossings as you kind of follow them. But it can be very easy to miss. So people have been making those plots but just didn't notice it because it was too much of a soup of these strings. So he realized that there can be a special case where they get knotted up. Um, and that's already cool, but then the most interesting part is that that's not the case um, for the outside world. So if you just have vacuum or air outside, electrons are, the, the, those strings flatten out. And so they're, they're, they can't be knotted up. So it's knotted up inside the material, but it it's, isn't outside. I'm trying not to say the word knots too many times. Um, <laughs> so, so then something has to happen as you go from inside to outside the material. So they're knotted here. Outside, they aren't knotted. So what happens right at the boundary of the material? And it, the interesting thing is the boundary is, you know, could be very complicated. The boundary could be, you could, you could take a spoon and carve out chunks out of the material and have pock marks and holes in it, and the boundary would still be the boundary. Um, so no matter how messy the boundary is, it, something must happen at it no matter what shape it takes. It's a very like, kind of universal, robust thing. Um, so um, what happens is this, is that these things are always happen to be insulators on the inside. So if you could, if you could sort of put a current uh, probe or something inside the material and try to run a current through the inside, it wouldn't work. No current would go. But the outside of these things is always a metal, and they do conduct electricity. In fact, it turns out these have been being used in wine fridges 
for a while, and the people who used them that way didn't know this about them. They just thought, wow, these things are great heat conductors. So they just put them into wine fridges um, to, to, be, to conduct the heat out of the, the fridge um, container, but they didn't know why they were such good heat conductors. And it turns out they transmit heat and electricity really, really well, but only on the outside, and the inside just isn't able to do that. But the wild part is if you cut it open, as soon as you cut it open, the two surfaces that you expose immediately become metallic. So they weren't metallic, and just by cutting it, they just pop apart, and now they're both metals. And it's not like coated in metal. It's not like where I took like a rock and I wrapped it up in tinfoil or something like that, or I painted metal onto the outside of something. It's the same material. So this material is something that it's like the square root of a metal on the surface, and when you put it together, it becomes an insulator. It's really weird. Or like square root of an insulator, but it's like a metal. So if I put these two pieces back together, those two surfaces that were metal, I can't see it because it's inside, but if I put it back together, they stop being a metal. So it's like a weird kind of square root of an insulator. The square is a metal. Or sorry, the square root is a metal. The square is an insulator kind of thing. So, so hopefully that makes sense. But basically, these, these, these things are unknotting on the surface and then carrying current on the surface. So that's, that's pretty wild. Okay, so that's, those are the two exotic forms of matter that, that have been discovered and are still kind of unpacking their, their potential uses for technology. Um, one other thing I should say is that um, if you can make a 1D chain of, these, of this surface, it can actually host these things that are like the square root of an electron. And these are thought to be something that um, could be used to make advanced computers, and Microsoft is actually investing in that technology right now. Um, okay, so last, uh, I think I'm doing pretty well on time. So last bit of the talk is about um, one other property of electrons that actually all quantum particles have, but electrons are sort of prototypical example. And there's new connections being made between this property of electrons, which is called entanglement, that I'll tell you a bit about, and space itself, and what space might actually be. Um, so, so electrons are actually very complicated, kind of mysterious things, and they're, they're very quantum in a sense, which I'll tell you what this means in this context. Um, they're not only like these kind of tornadoes of, uh, of kind of charge, but they also have a property that makes them similar to bar magnets. So they also give off a magnetic field, and they're always doing this. And you can think about why this is if you're familiar with this um, way of making a magnet, which is you wrap a wire. Like if you coil a wire and run a current through it, it, it gives a magnetic field off. So you can kind of think of an electron as sort of like just a ring of, of current going in a circle. That also kind of further supports this sort of tornado picture. However, of course, there's no wire or anything. I mean, it's so fundamental. There's no, there's no parts to it. Um, but just like a ring of, just like current going in a circle, an electron also kind of emits a magnetic field. And it always emits one of the same strength. But what's not fixed is the orientation of that field. So I'm going to draw it in a more simplified way, just like as a bar magnet sticking through. And this is the thing that you may have heard about in chemistry class in high school called the spin. So if you've heard of the spin, the spin is just that to specify an electron, you, not only do you say kind of where it is, but you also say what orientation its, its magnetic field has. Um, and so if you remember in chemistry, you had to do this kind of obscure counting where you would say 1s, 1, 2p, you know, 1, all these things. You count up these levels of electrons. Like how many people remember that from chemistry? Maybe two people. Okay, but you do this little level counting stuff in high school chemistry. And then there's always this weird number at the end where you put two electrons in every shell because of the spin. So, but it's not, ex usually the teachers don't explain it that, that much. Um, I was always really puzzled by it, which is kind of why I wanted to study this. Um, so. One thing that's really odd about spins is that you can prepare two electrons. So here, these are two different electrons, uh, the one on the left and the one on the right, in this kind of probabilistic state where you can make it such that you have a 50% chance of observing this orientation where the one on the left is up and the one on the right, the north is down. Or this, right? But that's not that special the way I just said it because 
I can do that with balls and cups, too. I can also turn away, have someone put a ball under one of two cups, and then turn back around. If they don't tell me which cup they put it under, then from my point of view, there's a 50% chance of seeing that configuration on the top or the one on the bottom. So how is this any different, right? I mean, maybe, it's, it's, maybe I'm not saying anything interesting other than that these things have two orientations, just like the balls have two different cups they could be under. What's different is the following, is that this is a single state of existence for these things, unlike the balls and cups things. So the balls and cup case, those are two different states of the existence of the universe, whether the ball is under one cup or the other cup. And just because I don't know it doesn't mean that the ball isn't under one of the cups. I mean, it is under one of the cups. I, I may not know, but maybe the person who put it under knows, or at least it's knowable. Like, someone could know that, right? The information is there. Um, here, uh, this is a single state of existence. It's sort of a thing that is 100% of the information about the system. All you can say about it is that whatever one is, the other is the opposite, and that's it. There's no further information there underneath to say about it. So the only thing we can say about it is that if I could observe one and find it to be, say, north, like up, the other one will be down, or the other way around, if I find it down, the other one will be up. And that's all you can say. That's all anyone can say about it. There is nothing more you can say about it. So the information is that somehow they have like a shared existence between each other. Somehow, the, normally we think of a certain amount of information being to a certain object, like a bit on a computer carries you know, one bit of information. But somehow here, there's a bit of information shared across two things that can be spatially far apart from each other. So that's pretty wild. Um, so the thing about it, this is information. You could say, I, I would like to think about one of them being in a certain direction and the other being the opposite. But that's not only something that you don't know. It's something that's unknowable. The information is not there. It just doesn't exist. So, so, you know, so with apologies to the church, I guess I could even say God doesn't know that information, right? But that's not, a, that's not me being um, you know, heretical or something, because God can't know something that isn't there. Like it's, it's, it's not something that anyone could know. It, it doesn't exist. It's kind of like saying, you know, um, how many of me are there down in the financial district? I mean, it just doesn't make sense, you know, this kind of thing. Um, okay, so um, this scenario is called quantum entanglement. That's the jargony name for it. So quantum entanglement means a kind of a shared state of existence between two distinct objects. And it can be sustained over huge distances, but this is actually the, uh, the rub here. So this is what we know for sure up to this point. So this slide is kind of the last slide at this part where everything I'm saying is totally kind of canonical physics. Um, so then here's where it gets kind of speculative, but there's some very serious and smart people thinking about the next part. So I just said that this kind of shared state of existence can be shared over huge distances, but there's some people who are currently rethinking this story a little bit or putting a different twist on it. And they're saying, actually, you said they're, they're a huge distance apart, and that might seem to be, like I can observe one here and one here. But actually, we could also define distance based on how much of a shared state two things have. So we could actually say if their shared state is perfect, if they're perfectly anti-correlated with each other or perfectly correlated with each other, they have no distance between each other. So this defines distance. So actually, they look like they're far apart. But actually, I'm just seeing kind of like a copy of something or like a mirror image of something. And there's actually kind of like a back door in space or some kind of tunnel through the back of space connecting them that I can't see. And so really, they're, they're, they're spatially coincident things. Um, and this is speculative, but, but it seems to match up with a lot of other things that we knew separately apart from this, but which seem kind of like a mystery to us. So it's almost like there's some small tunnel or bridge connecting them that we can't easily see. Um, another clue is that if you actually go through the mathematics of what's called uh, wormholes between black holes, so this is a cartoon I drew of, these would be two black holes, and then this is two black holes connected by a wormhole. If you write this down mathematically, it looks exactly like the mathematics of an electron with a definite orientation and another one. 
But if you write down the formula for uh, uh, two black holes connected by a wormhole, the mathematics is really, really, really analogous to two electrons that are in this kind of shared state, actually. It's, it's very, very similar. And this is a drawing from a, a, a magazine article I found that sort of illustrates this. So it's almost like saying that if they have this kind of shared existence, it's as if there's like a tunnel in space-time that connects them. So maybe the contradiction is resolved by saying, how can this one share information with that one? But actually, they're the same thing, you know, almost in some sense. We're just kind of seeing them through kind of two paths through space-time or something. So that could kind of resolve the, uh, the mystery. And even better than that, it could serve as kind of a building block of space-time. And this is the last, last bit of it. Um, so there's people now trying to make webs of these things. They're saying, what if we had not two, but a lot of these things, and then we made a web of, of kind of shared states between them. Could we derive Einstein's equations of gravity? And we, we can see lots of things that sort of have all the parts of Einstein's equations of gravity, which are the fundamental equations we know of so far for space and time. So that's actually working. Um, so that's, that's a, something just to keep your eye on to see if this develops. Okay, and last, last thing I just wanted to throw in, it's a slight change of topic of one slide, is that this same shared state capability is also, uh, could also be useful to do computing. So this is an actual device that's actually up in Yorktown Heights, just north of here, at, at IBM. And it's a quantum computer. And what it is is these, these boxes, that, 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 that and that, these five boxes, are like these kind of artificial electrons, like these artificial spins. And you can get them to be in these shared states with each other. So you can get, you know, these two to be in a shared state with each other, then transmit that to here, move it to here, move it to here. And you can kind of move it around. And, and if you actually count how many different shared states and combinations there are, it grows exponentially. So you can basically move some kind of list of numbers around in this exponential space. So it could do things that normal computers can't do. And a bunch of companies are getting in on this game. So we'll see if this really pans out. So there's some futuristic technology. So um, let me wrap up to have a little bit of time for questions. But basically, quantum mechanics tells us that, um, really interesting things. Electrons are wave-like and have this property where they can share state with each other. They can be kind of in a shared state of existence called entanglement. Um, they can support things that we really couldn't anticipate in terms of complicated forms of matter. When you get trillions of electrons together, they can do things almost like making a new standard model with new particles. And they can have knotted states that can unwrap on surfaces of materials. It's pretty wild and interesting. We're probably going to find some more in the future. And then finally, this shared state property of them that we can kind of tinker with in the lab may actually be the building block of space and time itself, which is speculative, but pretty exciting possibility that some serious people are, are working on at Stanford, at Princeton, at IES, and places. Um, so I wanted to tie it into um, Christianity to sort of transition to time for church. So, um, uh, so that basically, just my takeaways, and probably you can think of some of your own takeaways, is that there's an even more profound unity and order at levels of nature that we hadn't known until even recently. So it may be that you know, um, entanglement, which we thought was quantum mechanics, may actually be the same part and parcel of space-time, which is a different branch of physics. So we keep finding more and more and more symmetry and unity and order. So this kind of program that you know, older thinkers like uh, Faraday or, or Newton had said, okay, I believe that there's order because of my, my beliefs about God and the universe, so I'm going to go look for it. Well, we're finding it. So that, that program is working out. You know? So there is a lot of order there, um, more and more and more. And there's discoveries that nobody could anticipate. So nobody asked for quantum mechanics or even knew to look for it. So no one could have even thought to look for this fractional quantum Hall effect or this topological insulators. The only way we found it was by basically kind of backing and being forced into it or sort of backing into it. So it wasn't like, if you ever hear people say, you know, put everything else aside, let the scientists just, you know, use their powerful brains and just, they'll just work everything out from what we know now. 
That's not how it works. We have to go looking. We have to go dig up things out of the ground and attach wires to them. And then we see that after a while, what we thought was happening and what really happens diverges. Then we have to revise everything we thought we knew and you know, match. So it's, there's a lot more we can't predict or, or know unless we just go and look at how nature is really put together. So that's how science really works. Okay. And then um, finally, this, these things could and probably will have huge technological implications. So we need to know about these so we can kind of be ready and not caught by surprise you know, in terms of public policy and, uh, and uh, these kind of things. And so science tells us how to build things like quantum computers, but not what used to put them to you know, really the best. So we need to be involved and kind of aware of these technologies and what they can do so that people with other skills, you know, whether it's you know, financial skills or policy skills or these kind of things can help get into this game and understand and help guide it to good ends. Um, and then I want to leave up some resources that you can look at to sort of hear more about this. So thanks.